I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so glad we're in this series together out of the New Testament book of James. You know, James, as I've been mentioning to you, is the brother of Jesus. And there's some people you want to listen to in your life. How many of you know you ought to listen to Jesus? If Jesus is speaking, you ought to be listening to Jesus. But you ought to be listening to James, the brother of Jesus, as well. And not just because he's the brother of Jesus, but because he has such wisdom that he writes to us about. And furthermore, the Bible talks about, it's this whole idea of inspiration, that God, and you've heard me mention this before, that God would take the humanness of a person and their personalities. He doesn't remove that. But there's this idea that God would breathe upon, that God would inspire somebody, and that they would write the words as directed by the Holy Spirit to help people in that time in which they were written and to help people just like you and me hundreds of years later. And we've been walking through James, and I've I've been so enjoying it personally. I hope that you have been as well, just sort of verse by verse, starting in chapter 1. In fact, still today, we're in chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 13. And to get us started, I want to share with you a contrast, although I've got to be honest with you and say there's a part of me that is a little bit reluctant to share the contrast, lest you think that temptation, which is what we're going to talk about today, that temptation only really applies to the area that I'm going to mention to you when I know, and I hope you know, temptation is so much broader than that. You and I are tempted in a lot of different areas, but nevertheless, let me just share with you a total contrast. And both of these examples come out of the Old Testament. There's this great king by the name of David who has been powerfully used by God. He is a great warrior. God has raised him up. In fact, the Old Testament says of King David that he is a man who has a heart after God. And time and time again, he'd be used by God, starting with a taking down and really taking off of the head of Goliath when they had aligned themselves, the Philistines, against the Israelites and how that God would use him. And that would be the start of many things. Eventually, his promotion to king over all of Israel and how that God would use him. But then we come to a section of the Bible when it says that on this particular occasion, when all kings went out, this is the language, when all kings went out to war, that David stayed back home. He stayed back at the palace. He did not stay back because he was afraid. He did not stay back because he was not a great warrior. He was perhaps the greatest warrior of them all. But for whatever reason, passivity, maybe he had just been coming a little bit bored. He sends out all the troops and all of their leaders, and he stays back while his army goes to war. I don't know if it was just sheer boredom or what it was, but on one particular day, he just walks up on top of the roof of the palace, and he begins to look over, and because of his vantage point, because of the size and scope of his, his uh, palace, he can see a lot of things. And he notices that there is a woman bathing, and she's very, very attractive to him. And in that moment of temptation, he makes a decision that he had never made before. He sends some of his people to call for this very beautiful woman, has her brought to his palace, and he sleeps with her. He commits adultery. Not only does it, you know, this horrible, horrible thing that occurs in his life, but it it becomes even more pronounced because in the act of their adultery, in the act of their relationship, she becomes pregnant. He wants to hide. He wants to cover up his sin. So he does something even more treacherous than what he has already done before. He has this woman's husband murdered, David, a man after God's own heart, a man who had such promise, a man who had such great prestige, a man who had been so powerfully used by God. But in his moment of temptation, he caved. 
And it started a series of events that he would later regret in such a massive way. Well, that's one example. Then you go into another portion of the Old Testament, and there's another guy. This guy, his name is Joseph. And Joseph has been through a lot of pain in his life. He has actually been sold by his brothers to a caravan on the way to Egypt. He is sold, once he gets into Egypt, along this caravan as a slave. He works up through the ranks, and he eventually is a part of uh, Pharaoh's household. He's been, you know, sort of promoted. Uh, If you read the Scriptures and some of the language of the Scriptures, it becomes quite obvious that he is a very, very handsome man. It talks about his physical appearance. And apparently, it was just so stood out that the wife of Pharaoh made advances to Joseph every single day. Can I be very blunt? Every single day she was in, no doubt she was a very beautiful woman in her own regard, being Pharaoh's wife, but every single day she was in the face of Joseph saying, hey, I want you to sleep with me. I want you to sleep with me. Let's, let's have this relationship move forward. And again and again, he would, he would deny, he would decline. No, how could I? He had such a value and appreciation for God. And he also just thought, hey, when I have been blessed in the way, how could I take what rightfully belongs to the king? And how can I sin against God and the king? And day after day, even though he is confronted with tremendous amount of temptation because he was a normal kind of guy, he'd just say, no way, no how. I'm never, I'm never going to defy God's will for my life. Until one day... She has had, you know, enough, uh, and she's just like, this is going to be the date no matter what. And she reaches out, and she grabs his garment, and she says, I mean, with more urgency, sleep with me, sleep with me today. And, and he pulls away from her, and he does it so quickly that he leaves behind the garment that she has grabbed. And, and Joseph did what David should have done. He fled. He ran as fast as he could to get away from his temptation. She's still holding the garment. Then at that point, with the dejection and the anger, she calls in, you know, other servants of of that particular kingdom. And she says, look at what this Israelite has done to me. He has tried, and she made all these accusations. He tried to rape me. Here's a man who had a chance to say no to temptation, and David came. Here's a guy that it was in his face every day, but he chose to honor God. And I wanted to share with you that contrast, and yet again, there's this reluctancy on my part, because in the next few moments as we go to James chapter 1, you may think that as I talk about temptation, that temptation really deals uh, primarily with sexuality and, and not other things. But I'm saying to you, and I want to be clear about this, yes, that is very, very strong temptation, but it is just one of many. And we're going to talk about this today, and we're going to pick up at James chapter 1, and I want to take you I want to dive right into this, verse 13. And let me just say ahead of time, there are no message slides this morning, and it is totally my fault. It has nothing to do with the tech team. It was my fault. It was a crazy, crazy, crazy week, and I did not get my message slides in in time to be ready. But I promise you, I have a message. It is right here. And if you'll listen, even though it won't be on the screen, I'm going to share it with you, but listen closely. James chapter 1, verse 13, it said, very key word, by the way, when tempted. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, James says, nor does God tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, we're going to come back to this, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. 
Did you hear those first two words of verse 13? James, the brother of Jesus, this this great leader in the early church, this man of tremendous wisdom, he doesn't say, you know, if you're tempted or, uh, you know, that temptation may or may not occur to your life. That is not what James says. James says, when you're tempted. Operative word here is when. It's not if. James is not telling us that we may or may not be tempted. It is a given. He says, when we are tempted, and all of us are going to be tempted. Can I just tell you this? At some point between now and when we gather together next Sunday, you're going to be tempted. I'm going to be tempted. How many of you think you're like me? You're probably going to be tempted before the sun goes down today in some area of your life. Most all of us will be. So it's not if I'm going to be tempted because it may or may not happen. No, James said, it's going to happen. You're going to be tempted when tempted. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of surprises. I like to sort of emotionally and prepare myself for surprises. I don't like them. And and can I just tell you, I have been a little bit uh, healed, delivered, whatever you want to call it, from surprising other people. Therefore, a good while at the church until I got healed or cured or whatever you want to call it. I'd see certain ladies in the office that I knew that would just jump. You could barely say boo, and they'd like come out of their shoes. And this was very entertaining for me to just hide when I saw one of them coming and just jump out and say, whoo, and man, just hear them jump and scream. But on the day that I got cured, I did it one of the ladies in the church. I just sort of hid. I saw her coming in from the parking lot. There was a little, you know, area where I could hide. And when she got almost to that area to turn in, I just jumped out. And when I did, she screamed like I've never heard a human being scream before. And not only that, she started pounding me with her fist. She's like looking and screaming in shock. And she's like, ah, she's just, and I'm like, hey, there's stuff in our owner manual. You, I mean, our policy manual. You can't be beating on me like this, you know, in the workplace. And and, uh, she's just screaming, and I just thought, well, I I probably should not do that anymore. I'm not going to. So I got, uh, you know, delivered. You know, it was funny when they scream, but when they start beating on you, it takes it to a whole different category. I don't like surprises. I want to be prepared. And I want you to be prepared in regards to temptation. So I want to talk to you. I want to unpack for the next few moments verses 13, 14, and 15. I want to do that. I want you to understand the biblical text. And then what I'm going to do before we're done is give you three very, very practical things from the totality of the Bible, sort of combine them together and give you three practical things about how to deal with temptation. So let's deal with them verse by verse. Verse 13. When tempted, James said, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. Now, God has never been tempted. You're going to see, and we'll get on into this, sort of the second part of this talk, that Jesus has been tempted. In fact, you're going to see that Jesus was tempted in every conceivable way. But James is very clear right here that God has never been tempted, and he doesn't stop there. He adds, furthermore, he's never going to tempt anyone. So, with that in mind, it would be totally inaccurate for you or I to ever say, well, you know, I'm going through all of this temptation right now. I'm just in the pressure cooker of temptation. And to say something like, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why are you tempting me? Why are you doing this? That would be, according to the Bible, according to James, this book that we're studying in this series, that would be totally inaccurate because God has never been tempted, nor can God tempt anyone. It's just not in his nature to do that. So, it would be totally inaccurate for us to say, God is behind this because God has not been tempted and God's never going to tempt anybody. Verse 14, if God is not the source of our temptation, then what is? And verse 14 tells us, listen to it carefully. I know it's not on the screen, but each one is tempted when 
by his own evil desire, his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. See, a lot of times we like to say, well, you know, if we're not careful, we don't understand the Bible fully, we may say, God, what is up? Why are you tempting me? And James is clear, no, God has never been tempted. He's never going to tempt anybody. And then a lot of times, and I think it's sometimes for our own sense of justification or to, you know, treat temptation in a little bit uh, way that I'm not as much personally responsible. Sometimes we can even say, well, I know, okay, I'm clear. It's not God. I understand what James says. So it's just the devil. It's the evil one. It's Satan who has tempted me. Now, you're going to see at the very end of this talk, that Jesus said, yeah, you need to pray so that the evil one does not tempt you. You don't fall into the temptation of the evil one. But I'm just telling you, friends, and you need to hear this. It's very, very important theologically and practically for your life. A lot of times we think that it is the evil one and only the evil one, Satan, the devil, who is tempting us, when in reality, James is saying, and I think it's the majority of the time, that it is not God who is tempting us, it's not even the evil one that is tempting us, but we are actually captured by our own evil desires. In fact, the word desire that James uses here in verse 14 actually comes from a Greek word, epithamia, which can actually mean lust or selfish ambition or evil desire. In fact, David Nystrom, who's a New Testament scholar, has said this, there is a powerful capacity for sin and evil within every human being, and that is all-inclusive of us. So, if God can't tempt anyone, then where is temptation coming from? And James would say, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it is coming from your own evil desires. Now, listen to verse 15, all right? Now, how many of you, and I need to look here, I cover my eyes and I can see everybody when I do this. How many of you are totally with me right now? Just wave your hand at me so I know that you're totally with me. And I want you to stay with me. And in fact, let me explain for the newer people to our church, we have a rule here in our church. We don't have a lot of rules, but here's a rule that we can actually actuate during the service. If you notice that somebody is drifting while I'm talking, while I'm giving a a message and they're drifting and you realize they've got their eyes shut and they seem very relaxed, but they are not praying, then you smack them and bring them back to life. That's very important. That when you smack them and they look like, what did you just do? Then you look at them and very calmly say, and I do it in Jesus' name. Stay awake. You stay awake. God has a word for you. So how many of you are with me? Look around you. Anybody need to be smacked yet? All right, there's still 23 minutes to go in this service, so there's plenty of time for some smacking to go on, I'm just telling you. Verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. Obviously, James here is using the, the language of childbirth. He said, you take desire, and if desire, you know, these evil desires that he said are a part of our life and are real cannot be denied, if we don't, like, keep that under control, keep it reined in, if we don't say no to the screaming enticement of our own flesh nature, then desire will always lead to sin, and sin will always lead to death. Now, let me speak to that for just a moment. When James is saying desire 
if not halted, if we don't say no to our flesh, and it leads into sin, where I'm not avoiding temptation, I'm not like making excuses, well, I couldn't help it, and I'm weak, and I didn't see a way out, and it's not my fault, somebody else's fault, and uh, I never would have done that. I mean, the, the reality is, anytime that we're, we're doing that, the reality is, if we're not saying no to our desire, then it's going to give birth to sin. And if we just become more and more comfortable with that, and no longer do we even deal with that, it's like, you know, it's who I am, it's what I do, and, and you know, I'm just, you know, I don't feel passionate about saying no to my flesh anymore. Uh, I don't say no to temptation. I don't look for an exit door when I'm being tempted. Then the reality is that gives birth to, to death. Spiritual death, separation from God. Now, I want to be clear about that. James here is not speaking in regards to like an isolated sin because all of us sin. There's a difference between if you and I sin and we have this tremendous regret about our sin and and we repent of our sin and we're so sorry and we ask God for help so that we don't fall into that same temptation, that same trap. It is different than somebody that just says, after a while, you know, I've become so comfortable with my sin. Sin, my desires, I'm just going to let my desires just run full reign and I'm not going to deny myself anything. That leads to death. Now, that's James 1, 13 through 15. What I want to do in the last bit of this time that we have together is I want to give you three very practical thoughts about temptation from the Bible, from the, you know, again, the totality of the Bible, not just exclusively out of James chapter 1. So I want to give them to you, again, very practical, and they've helped me many, many times, and I think they're going to help you. All right, application, some practical things. Practical step number one is to keep this in mind, our temptations are not unique. They are not. In the middle of our temptations, we're going to feel like, you know, they're unique. Why me? What's going on? A little bit of self-pity can enter into the whole equation as well. But I want you to listen to what Paul said. This is not James now. This is Paul. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. So you can't say, this is, man, this is unique. Nobody knows what I'm, I'm going through. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow. This is very important. You need to hear this, every one of you. And he will not allow the temptation to become more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, this is what you and I need to know, friends. It's very important. We need to know that anytime temptation is making its presence known in our life, we're going to be, a little play on words here, we're going to be tempted to think, that we are in this all alone, but you are not. Firstly, you've got to understand, and this is under this first, so I don't want to throw you off when I say firstly. It's still under this first practical application. Firstly, there's nothing new or unusual about the temptation that you're faced with. See, some of you may be up against a bout with temptation right now in your life, the season in your life, in some area of your life, and if you're not careful, you'll start saying, why me? Why am I being tempted? You know, what does God have against me? Am I being punished? What's going on in my life? Or, or you may some, say something like this. This is not fair. It is not fair. And again, if we're not careful, some self-pity starts seeping in. This is not fair. And we start feeling sorry for ourselves because we're being tempted. Or we just say something really incredulous and we say something like this. Well, nobody knows what this is like. Nobody knows what I'm going through. It's not what the Bible says. The temptations that we are facing are not unique. 
Or maybe we say something like this. This, this is more, and this is where we can feel a little prideful, legal, a little bit egotistical, and that is, well, my temptation is more difficult than what most people encounter. Mine is tougher than most people. And again, friends, all of these are inaccuracies. What we must remember is that we are not alone. In fact, God is always there, and it's even broader than that. Not only is God there, God is always providing us with a way of escape. In fact, did you hear what Paul said? He said, he will not allow, listen now, he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. So you and I can never justifiably say, but I was too weak. I was too weak. Uh, Translated, it's not my fault. I was too weak. It's not true. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And that's part of that. He said, in fact, Paul did, when you're tempted, he's going to show you a way out so that you can endure, so that none of us could rightfully say, well, I could not stop it. I've talked to people before, and it's, it's like, and I know what's going on. I do, and, and I'm sympathetic toward it, but it's, it's trying, you know, in conversations to, like, convince me as though I've never read the Bible before, but to just say, I... I couldn't stop. I couldn't bring it to a halt. Well, that's totally contrary to the Bible. That says when you're tempted, God's always going to show you a way out. A number of years ago, I picked up a book by John Ortberg, and in it, he, he talks about Carl Jung. And he says this, listen carefully. He said, Carl Jung, whose father was a pastor, used to speak of our shadow side. And he defines that a little bit. Those patterns of thought and action that betray our deepest values that lead to regret and guilt. Orberg says, I know Jung used it in a secularized way and didn't invoke the presence of God or a need for forgiveness. He said, but I find the image of a shadow to be helpful. It describes that sense of hiddenness, vagueness, and confusion that my sin causes. Just as we all have a mission, a way of contributing to God's kingdom that we were designed and gifted for, we also have, he writes, and it's true, what might be called a shadow mission. My shadow mission is what I will do with my life if I drift on autopilot. My shadow mission consists of the activities toward which I will gravitate if I allow my natural temptations and selfishness to take over. He says everybody has a shadow mission. Just as we all, I totally agree with Ortberg, just as we all have a purpose and a mission given to us by God to accomplish with the gifts and abilities and talents that God has given to us to accomplish a mission in our life, we must also come to grips that we have this shadow mission, this hidden part of us that we don't want anybody else to know about, not God, not a family member, not a friend, not anyone. And I pray that that will just jolt many of you into reality and just come to the acceptance. And maybe you'd, be, uh, maybe you'd find help in dealing with the struggle that you're faced with now by just admitting, I too have a shadow mission. And I know that I'm going to be tempted, and you're a realist about that. You don't live in denial. I too have a shadow mission. I will be tempted. I do have a choice. And because I have a choice, God will always, always, always make certain that I have a way out. So I can never accurately say, I was too weak. I couldn't help it. I didn't have a choice. So we need to be clear. Practical application number one is simply this. The temptations that we face are not unique, but we find hope and solace in the reality that God's always going to provide us with a way out so we don't have to cave. Here's the second application. Jesus himself, I alluded to this earlier, told you we'd come back to it. 
Jesus was tempted in every possible way so that he understands our temptation and he will help us. How often have you and I said to somebody, I understand? And in actuality, we did not understand. It was impossible for us to understand. Can I tell you, I did this as, as a young pastor for many, many years because I felt sympathy and empathy and compassion towards somebody. I would often hear them out. And as a young pastor, I really didn't know any better. I mean, now that I'm older, you know, like 32 and have a lot of maturity and stuff. Okay. Okay, maybe a little bit beyond that. But, you know, as a young pastor, I would hear somebody just sort of pour their heart out and ju- ju- they would just share and they would talk. And I would say, I understand. And then later I realized, no, I don't understand. I should not say I understand. I can say, I'll pray for you. What can I do for you? I will help you, just like you need to do your friends. When somebody shares with you something and you, don't, you can't understand because you've never had that experience, please don't say to them, I understand, because it's impossible for you to understand. You can let them know, I love you. I'm here for you. I care about you. In fact, I want to just deviate for just a moment, then we're coming right back to this. I'm telling you, friends, do not miss next week. What James talks about when we pick up next week from where we're going to leave off today, he talks about the dynamic of personal relationships. And I'm just telling you, what you're going to hear, what we're going to learn, what I want to share with you straight out of James next week is going to help you in many of your personal relationships. It's going to help you with your relationships at work, with your friends. It can help you in a tremendous way with your marriage. You do not need to miss it. You need to bring somebody here with you. But if you have somebody and you're listening to them and you hear them and they're bearing their heart and you've never had that experience, please do not say, I understand. I cannot honestly say to somebody who has lost a spouse, I understand, because I've not lost my spouse. I can't say to somebody that has lost a child, I understand, because I have not lost a child. I have not lost, at least at this point in my life, my mother or my dad or my brother, or my two sisters. So when somebody shares in the agony of the moment, in that grief, I cannot say, I understand. If somebody says to me, you know, Jeff, it's, it's like I'm so totally depressed. It's like the whole world is dark. It's like, you know, the sun is not shining, the, and the sky is not blue, and, and I'm just in a darkness, and I don't know what I'm going to do about it, and I do not know how to get out of it. I should not, nor should you. If you've not had that experience, look at somebody and say, I understand. I don't understand. I know what it's like to be sad. I know what it's like to be discouraged, but I've never had a bout with any kind of depression. So I can't say I understand. I cannot say to somebody, you know, I understand that there's downsizing going on in your company or your business is struggling or, oh, I'm so sorry that you got laid off from your job or, you know, your business had to close its doors. I understand. I cannot say I understand. I can say, but I'm here if you need me, and I'm praying for you, but I cannot say, I understand. Now, why would I take the time to mention all of that? Because any of us, no matter what area of our life that we are facing temptation in, all of us can go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm being tempted. First of all, if we would listen, we would hear him say, I know you're being tempted. 
I love it in the Bible when people are having conversations. You ever see this in the Bible where people are having this, uh, conversations and they're not even in proximity anywhere near Jesus and they're whispering to each other so that Jesus does not hear what they're saying and Jesus is way over here on the other side of the house or the other side of the room and Jesus answers what they're whispering about. And we go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I don't know if you know it or not, but I'm being tempted in this area. And he says, I know. I love you. I care about you. I'm omniscient. I know. But Jesus, do you understand? And he says, yeah, I understand. Because, this is what the Bible says, because I have been tempted in every way just as you have been tempted. In regards to temptation, in fact, all forms of temptation, Jesus can confidently claim, understand. Hebrews 2.18 says this, and now that Jesus has suffered and was tempted, he can help anybody else who is tempted. Listen to this passage. This is out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest, and it's talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the reality, friend, is none of us can say, well, Jesus doesn't understand because Jesus does understand. I mentioned to you earlier that God has never been tempted, but Jesus most assuredly has. And you may even be thinking today, but what about my temptation? What about mine? Mine's unique. Mine's not like everybody else's. And to you, Jesus would say, yes, I understand. I was tempted that way. Well, Jesus, what about this temptation in my life? I'm not just tempted, you might say, in one area. I'm tempted in many areas. What about this temptation? Jesus said, yes, I understand that as well. What about this? Yes, I understand. Jesus, it says, has been tempted in every way. And then verse 16, we saw this earlier, then tells us that we can approach him confidently and ask for help in our time of need. You come before me. Jesus says, I know what you're being tempted with, and I understand your temptation because I was tempted in the same way that you were being tempted now. So come to me, and when you come to me, you come confidently in your time of need, and you ask me for help, and then James gives us the outcome. He says, and when you do that, you will receive from Jesus mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. How many of you are just, you're just glad to know that? Because anytime you're being tempted, you're going to feel alone. You're going to feel like nobody else has ever been through this. I'm all by myself. Nobody understands. And it's just not true. Jesus understands because he was tempted in every way that we are. And he cares about us. And he's going to help us. How many of you are still with me? I'm looking. I'm looking. Anybody need to be smacked yet? We've got like eight minutes. We can, we can still smack somebody if we need to. All right. You all right? Let me give you the third and final one. And I thought about this one a lot because this has been what I've noticed in other people's lives as well as my life. A lot of time, the praying that we do most in regards to temptation is the praying that we do after we have caved to temptation. And it normally is like, I'm so sorry. I can't believe that I caved. God, I know that I've said, and I hate it so. And most of our prayers in regard to temptation, when you think about it, is really after the temptation. But Jesus teaches us that we actually need to pray before. In fact, listen to what he says in Luke 22. Luke 22, uh, he says this. It says this. Jesus left the city and went, as he usually did, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples went with him. When he arrived at the place, this is what he said to them. 
He said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. It's not that Jesus will not hear us after the temptation. It's just he's saying, you know what? Wouldn't it be so much better instead of praying prayers that are born out of regret and prayers because you have given in, because you have caved, because you have not taken an exit, because you have sinned against me? Wouldn't it be so much better instead of having to pray prayers of repentance, asking for mercy and forgiveness afterwards, if on the front side of it, you would ask for help and strength? You know, there's something about temptation, there's something about sin that I've noticed. It always looks harmless until you get sucked in. Have you ever noticed that? Some of you have heard me tell this story I'm going to uh, tell real quickly here. I told it here, I think, a few years ago, and uh, some of you may have heard me share this uh, story actually 10 or 11 years ago when I spoke at the North Campus. There's a story, uh, Gary Richmond is the guy's name, and he paints an unforgettable picture You see, Richmond used to work at a zoo that had a 13-foot-long king cobra. How many of you are like me? Count me out. Count me out. Don't want a job anywhere around that snake. Its venom glands contained enough poison to kill a 1,000 adults. The cobra, and many of you have seen these king cobras, how hideous they look. The cobra had a scar that made him look like the embodiment of evil, but worse, it meant that when the snake shed its skin, the eye cap did not come off. It had to be removed by hand, and this writer says, and unfortunately, snakes don't have hands. So this required a team of five people, actually, two keepers, the zoo's curator, a veterinarian, and Gary, whose job was to furnish the scalpel and sponge to the vet. The cobra slithered from its den, spread its cape, raised itself up to full stature, and looked at the five intruders, deciding on its first victim. He chose the curator, but with lightning speed, the keepers threw their nets around the writhing snake. The curator grasped it behind the venom glands, and the vet said, and we all can appreciate this, let's get this over. His hands were trembling. Beads of sweat sweat were dripping off everyone's forehead but the snakes, this writer says. The vet asked Gary if he had any cuts on his hands. No, he said. He told Gary to wad up paper towels and stuff them in the cobra's mouth. Okay. The cobra bit and chewed until the towels were yellow and dripping with venom. As the team worked, the curator explained that every year several full-grown elephants die from king cobra bites. He said a man could never survive a bite with a full load of venom. This is why he was having Gary drain the snake's venom sacs. The curator's hands were sweating, and his muscles were weakening. His fingers were starting to cram, which could not have been good news for anybody except maybe the snake. The curator wasn't sure that he could move quickly enough when it was time for the release, and then he explained what he called the secret of the snake, and this is what he said. More people are bitten trying to let go of snakes than when they grab them. Here's the message. Easy to grab hard to let go. Some of you are facing something right now in your life. The temptation that is so strong, that is so great, it's like, do I, do, always remember, easy to grab, much, much harder to turn loose, to let go. It's why Jesus said, So much better if you pray on the front side of temptation. Pray. This is what Jesus said. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. Ask for help and strength ahead of time rather than having with regret and sorrow. Pray a different prayer afterwards. Jesus also taught his closest followers to pray and lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from the evil one. So pray ahead of time. And again, you know, I mentioned to you, it's not like the evil one doesn't tempt us. God will never tempt us. Jesus will never tempt us. Jesus said, pray, pray that you will be delivered from the evil one. Pray that you'll not be led into temptation. So there are times when the evil one tempts us. But here's what I want us to know. Here's what I want us to realize. And I pray that you will grab hold of it. It is a much better thing to pray before the temptation. It is even better to pray during the temptation because the law of the snake is, it's easy to grab. It's just hard to let go. And maybe even ahead of time, you would pray what Jesus taught his followers to pray, keep me from temptation. Or or maybe in the midst of it, help me, God, I'm being tempted. Give me the strength that I need in place of my weakness. James teaches us, and the Scriptures do, that we need to understand that Jesus understands what we're going through. We can never say, Jesus, here's what I'm going through, and he not have have prior knowledge of it, or he say, well, I I don't know how to help you on this one because I've never been there. No. The Bible says he's been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin. And the Scripture says when you're tempted, and when it's like you got pressure from every side, and you're tempted to reach out and grab the snake, Before you do, look around because God loves you so much, He will always make sure that you have a way out. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? How many of you believe that God has spoken to us today? Do you believe that? And I know that God wants to touch your life. I know that God wants to help you. I know that God wants to encourage you. Right there where your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, you would say, I'm not, I'm not doing this for me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just asking you a question. How many of you, you feel like you've heard from the Lord today about an area in your life that you need help with? You just say, this, this message, Pastor Jeff, was for me. It was for me. Could I just see your hand? And let me just pray for you right there where you're at. God, we all face it. None of us are immune to it. We remember the very first words of verse 13, when tempted. It's not if, but when we're tempted. We're not to say that God is tempting us, for God can tempt no man. God has never been tempted. Thank you that there's always a way out. Thank you that you teach us, Jesus, in your word to pray, and lead me not into temptation. I don't want to fall into temptation. God made me strong. And then in the middle of my temptation, Help me to look around and look for a way out. Help me to be more like Joseph who just takes off running and flees than to do like David and to cave. Help me to be strong in you and in the power of your might. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I love you, everybody. God bless you. Be sure you don't miss next Sunday. Have a great week.